Part two, chapter fifteen of Madame Bovary by Gustave Flaubert, translated by Eleanor Mark Saverling. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Peter Dan. Part two, chapter fifteen. The crowd was waiting against the wall, symmetrically enclosed between the balustrades. At the corner of the neighbouring streets, huge bills repeated in quaint letters Lucie de Lamamour, La Jeudi Opera, etc. The weather was fine, the people were hot, perspiration trickled amid the curls, and handkerchiefs taken from pockets were mopping red foreheads, and now and then a warm wind that blew from the river gently stirred the border of the tick awnings hanging from the doors of the public houses. A little lower down, however, one was refreshed by a current of icy air that smelt of tallow, leather and oil. This was an exhalation from the Rue des Charrettes, full of large black warehouses where they made casks. For fear of seeming ridiculous, Emma, before going in, wished to have a little stroll in the harbour, and Bovary prudently kept his tickets in his hand in the pocket of his trousers, which he pressed against his stomach. Her heart began to beat as soon as she reached the vestibule. She involuntarily smiled with vanity on seeing the crowd rushing to the right by the other corridor while she went up the staircase to the reserved seats. She was as pleased as a child to push with her finger the large tapestried door. She breathed in with all her might the dusty smell of the lobbies, and when she was seated in her box she bent forward with the air of a duchess. The theatre was beginning to fill. Opera glasses were taken from their cases, and the subscribers, catching sight of one another, were bowing. They came to seek relaxation in the fine arts after the anxieties of business. But business was not forgotten. They still talked cotton, spirits of wine or indigo. The heads of old men were to be seen, inexpressive and peaceful, with their hair and complexions looking like silver medals tarnished by steam of lead. The young beaux were strutting about in the pit, showing in the opening of their waistcoats their pink or apple-green cravats, and Madame Bovary from above admired them, leaning on their canes with golden knobs in the open palm of the yellow gloves. Now the lights of the orchestra were lit, the lustre let down from the ceiling, throwing by the glimmering of its facets a sudden gaiety over the theatre. Then the musicians came in, one after the other, and first there was the protracted hubbub of the basses grumbling, violins squeaking, cornets trumpeting, flutes and flageolets fifing. But three knocks were heard on the stage, a rolling of drums began, the brass instruments played some chords, and the curtain rising discovered a country scene. It was the crossroads of a wood, with a fountain shaded by an oak to the left. Peasants and lords with plaids on their shoulders were singing a hunting song together. Then a captain suddenly came on, who evoked the spirit of evil by lifting both his arms to heaven. Another appeared. They went away, and the hunters started afresh. She felt herself transported to the reading of her youth, into the midst of Walter Scott. She seemed to hear through the mist the sound of the Scotch bagpipes re-echoing over the heather. 
Then her remembrance of the novel helped her to understand the libretto. She followed the story, phrase by phrase, while vague thoughts that came back to her dispersed at once again with the bursts of music. She gave herself up to the lullaby of the melodies and felt all her being vibrate as if the violin bows were drawn over her nerves. She had not eyes enough to look at the costumes, the scenery, the actors, the painted trees that shook when anyone walked, and the velvet caps, cloaks, swords, all those imaginary things that floated amid the harmony as in the atmosphere of another world. But a young woman stepped forward, throwing a purse to a squire in green. She was left alone, and the flute was heard like the murmur of a fountain or the warbling of birds. Lucy attacked her cavatina in G major bravely. She plained of love. She longed for wings. Emma, too, fleeing from life, would have liked to fly away in an embrace. Suddenly Edgar Lagardy appeared. He had that splendour pallor that gives something of the majesty of marble to the ardent races of the South. His vigorous form was tightly clad in a brown-coloured doublet. A small chiselled poniard hung against his left thigh, and he cast round laughing looks showing his white teeth. They said that a Polish princess, having heard him sing one night on the beach at Biarritz, when he mended boats, had fallen in love with him. She had ruined herself for him. He had deserted her for other women, and this sentimental celebrity did not fail to enhance his artistic reputation. The diplomatic mummer took care always to slip into his advertisement some poetic phrase on the fascination of his person and the susceptibility of his soul. A fine organ, imperturbable coolness, more temperament than intelligence, more power of emphasis than of real singing, made up the charm of this admirable charlatan nature, in which there was something of the hairdresser and the toreador. From the first scene he evoked enthusiasm. He pressed Lucy in his arms. He left her. He came back. He seemed desperate. He had outbursts of rage, then elegaic gurglings of infinite sweetness, and the notes escaped from his bare neck full of sobs and kisses. Emma leant forward to see him clutching the velvet of the box with her nails. She was filling her heart with these melodious lamentations that were drawn out to the accompaniment of the double basses, like the cries of the drowning and the tumult of a tempest. She recognised all the intoxication and the anguish that had almost killed her. The voice of a prima donna seemed to her to be but echoes of her conscience, and this illusion that charmed her as some very thing of her own life but no one on earth had loved her with such love. He had not wept like Edgar that last moonlit night when they said, Tomorrow, tomorrow. The theatre rang with cheers. They recommenced the entire movement. The lovers spoke of the flowers on their tomb, of vows, exile, fate, hopes. And when they uttered the final adieu, Emma gave a sharp cry that mingled with the vibrations of the last chords. But why, asked Bovary, does that gentleman persecute her? No, no, she answered, he is her lover. Yet he vows vengeance on her family, while the other one who came on before said, I love Lucy and she loves me. 
Besides, he went off with her father, arm in arm, for he certainly is her father, isn't he, the ugly little man with a cock's feather in his hat? Despite Emma's explanations, as soon as the recitative duet began again in which Gilbert lays bare his abominable machinations to his master Ashton, Charles, seeing the false troth ring that is to deceive Lucy, thought it was a love gift sent by Edgar. He confessed, moreover, that he did not understand the story because of the music, which interfered very much with the words. "'What does it matter?' said Emma. "'Do be quiet.' Yes, but you know, he went on, leaning against her shoulder, I like to understand things. Be quiet, be quiet, she cried impatiently. Lucy advanced, half supported by her women, a wreath of orange blossoms in her hair, and paler than the white satin of her gown. Emma dreamed of her marriage day. She saw herself at home again amid the corn in the little path as they walked to the church. Oh, why had not she, like this woman, resisted, implored? She, on the contrary, had been joyous without seeing the abyss into which she was throwing herself. Ah, if in the freshness of her beauty, before the soiling of marriage and the dissolutions of adultery, she could have anchored her life upon some great strong heart, then virtue, tenderness, voluptuousness, and duty blending, she would never have fallen from so high a happiness. But that happiness, no doubt, was a lie invented for the despair of all desire. She now knew the smallness of the passions that art exaggerated. So, striving to divert her thoughts, Emma determined now to see in this reproduction of her sorrows only a plastic fantasy, well enough to please the eye, and she even smiled internally with disdainful pity when at the back of the stage, under the velvet hangings, a man appeared in a black cloak. His large Spanish hat fell at a gesture he made, and immediately the instruments and the singers began the sextet. Edgar, flashing with fury, dominated all the others with his clearer voice. Ashton hurled homicidal provocations at him in deep notes. Lucy uttered her shrill plaint, Arthur at one side his modulated tones in the middle register, and the bass of the minister pealed forth like an organ, while the voices of the women, repeating his words, took them up in chorus delightfully. They were all in a row, gesticulating, and anger, vengeance, jealousy, terror, and stupefaction breathed forth at once from their half-opened mouths. The outraged lover brandished his naked sword. His guipure ruffle rose with jerks to the movements of his chest, and he walked from right to left with long strides, clanking against the boards the silver-gilt spurs of his soft boots widening out at the ankles. He, she thought, must have an inexhaustible love to lavish it upon the crowd with such a fusion. All her small fault-findings faded before the poetry of the part that absorbed her, and drawn towards this man by the illusion of the character, she tried to imagine to herself his life, that life resonant, extraordinary, splendid, and that might have been hers if fate had willed it. They would have known one another, loved one another, 
With him, through all the kingdoms of Europe, she would have travelled from capital to capital, sharing his fatigues and his pride, picking up the flowers thrown to him, herself embroidering his costumes. Then, each evening at the back of a box, behind the golden trellis work, she would have drunk in eagerly the expansions of this soul that would have sung for her alone. From the stage, even as he acted, he would have looked at her. But the mad idea seized her that he was looking at her. It was certain. She longed to run to his arms, to take refuge in his strength, as in the incarnation of love itself, and to say to him, to cry out, Take me away, carry me with you, let us go, thine, thine, all my ardour and all my dreams. The curtain fell. The smell of the gas mingled with that of the breaths, the waving of the fans made the air more suffocating. Emma wanted to go out. The crowd filled the corridors, and she fell back in her armchair with palpitations that choked her. Giles, fearing that she would faint, ran to the refreshment room to get a glass of barley water. He had great difficulty in getting back to his seat, for his elbows were jerked at every step because of the glass he held in his hands, and he even spilt three-fourths on the shoulders of a Rouen lady in short sleeves, who, feeling the cold liquid running down to her loins, uttered cries like a peacock as if she were being assassinated. Her husband, who was a mill-owner, railed at the clumsy fellow, and while she was with her handkerchief wiping up the stains from her handsome cherry-coloured taffeta gown, he angrily muttered about indemnity, costs, reimbursement. At last Charles reached his wife, saying to her, quite out of breath, Ma foi, I thought I should have to stay there. There's such a crowd, such a crowd. He added, Just guess whom I met up there. Monsieur Léon. Léon? Himself. He's coming along to pay his respects. And as he finished these words, the ex-clerk of Yonville entered the box. He held out his hand with the ease of a gentleman, and Madame Bovary extended hers, without doubt obeying the attraction of a stronger will. She had not felt it since that spring evening when the rain fell upon the green leaves and they had said good-bye, standing at the window. But soon recalling herself to the necessities of the situation, with an effort she shook off the torpor of her memories and began stammering a few hurried words. "'Ah, good day! What, you here?' "'Silence!' cried a voice from the pit, for the third act was beginning. "'So you are at Rouen?' Yes. And since when? Turn them out! Turn them out! People were looking at them. They were silent. But from that moment she listened no more, and the chorus of the guests, the scene between Ashton and his servant, the grand duet in D major, all were for her as far off as if the instruments had grown less sonorous and the characters more remote. She remembered the games at cards at the druggists, and the walk to the nurses, the reading in the arbour, the tete-a-tete by the fireside, all that poor love, so calm and so protracted, so discreet, so tender, and that she had, nevertheless, forgotten. And why had he come back? What combination of circumstances had brought him back into her life? 
He was standing behind her, leaning with his shoulder against the wall of the box. Now and again she felt herself shuddering beneath the hot breath of his nostrils falling upon her hair. Does this amuse you? he said, bending over her so closely that the end of his moustache brushed her cheek. She replied carelessly, Oh, dear me, no, not much. Then he proposed that they should leave the theatre and go and take an ice somewhere. Oh, not yet, let us stay, said Bovary. Her hair's undone, this is going to be tragic. But the mad scene did not at all interest Emma, and the acting of the singer seemed to her exaggerated. She screams too loud, she said, turning to Charles, who was listening. Yes, a little, he replied, undecided between the frankness of his pleasure and his respect for his wife's opinion. Then, with a sigh, Léon said, The heat is unbearable, yes. Do you feel unwell? asked Bovary. Yes, I'm stifling. Let us go. Monsieur Léon put a long lace shawl carefully about her shoulders, and all three went off to sit down in the harbour, in the open air, outside the windows of a café. First they spoke of her illness, although Emma interrupted Charles from time to time for fear, she said, of boring Monsieur Léon. And the latter told them that he had come to spend two years at Rouen, in a large office, in order to get practice in his profession, which was different in Normandy and Paris. Then he inquired after Berta, the Homais, Mère Le François, and, as they had in the husband's presence nothing more to say to one another, the conversation soon came to an end. People coming out of the theatre passed along the pavement, humming or shouting at the top of their voices, O Belange, Ma Lucia. Then Léon, playing the dilettante, began to talk music. He had sent Tamburini, Rubini, Passiani, Grisi, and compared with them, Lagardi, despite his grand outbursts, was nowhere. Yet, interrupted Charles, who was slowly sipping his rum sherbet, they say that he is quite admirable in the last act. I regret leaving before the end, because it was beginning to amuse me. Why, said the clerk, he will soon give another performance. But Charles replied that they were going back next day. Unless, he added, turning to his wife, you would like to stay alone, kitten? And changing his tactics at this unexpected opportunity that presented itself to his hopes, the young man sang the praises of Lagardi in the last number. It was really superb, sublime. Then Charles insisted, You would get back on Sunday. Come, make up your mind. You are wrong if you feel that this is doing you the least good. The tables round them, however, were emptying. A waiter came and stood discreetly near them. Charles, who understood, took out his purse. The clerk held back his arm and did not forget to leave two more pieces of silver that he made chink on the marble. I'm really sorry, said Bovary, about the money which you are... The other made a careless gesture full of cordiality and taking his hat said, It is settled, isn't it? Tomorrow at six o'clock. Charles explained once more that he could not absent himself longer but that nothing prevented Emma... But she stammered with a strange smile, I'm not sure. Well, you must think it over. We'll see. Night brings counsel. Then to Léon, who was walking along with them. Now that you're in our part of the world, I hope you'll come and ask us for some dinner now and then. 
The clerk declared he would not fail to do so, being obliged, moreover, to go to Yonville on some business for his office. And they parted before the saint Blanc passage, just as the clock in the cathedral struck half-past eleven. End of part two, chapter fifteen.